Good morning. I trust that my Carolina fans are doing well this morning. You, you guys are going to be insufferable for the next year, all right? <laughs> to, to my Ohio State and Clemson uh, parishioners, I hope that you've had adequate time to mourn. Okay, you can't win them all, uh, but we're glad you still decided to come to church uh, this morning. Can I get a little more house light out there so, they can, uh, so I can see them? I want to know if they're, uh, if they're paying attention or not. That's going to come, and I'm, that way I can tell if you fall asleep. If you've got a Bible, and I hope, there you go. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open with me to Revelation 19. We're going to continue looking at the second coming of Christ over the next couple of weeks. Now, we're doing this rather intentionally in a season where most of the time we would begin to uh, devote our attention to Christ's first coming. And now while we do want to spend some time thinking about Jesus coming at Christmas and, and what that, all that means, we don't want to get out of balance and forget that Jesus not only came the first time and was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph in a manger, but that He is in fact coming again. We want to we wanna spend some time thinking about it. And last week, if you, hear, if you were here, what we did was we tried to establish as fact in your mind that Jesus is one day coming again. And now, I, I don't want to go back and rehash all of that, but if I could just for a second uh, tell you why that's important, I, I think sometimes we live as if that's a, a, a Disney-type reality, Something that exists in the ether, but is not the ultimate reality of all the world that Jesus Christ is coming back. I want you to feel as confident in the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. I want it to be as real to you as the food that was on your plate on Thursday. And Lord knows there was enough of that, alright? That was a joke, alright? Y'all are Baptists, y'all, can, y'all ate a lot, I know you did. I want it to be bona fide I want it to be as real as the air that you breathe. Jesus Christ is coming back. And so last week we spent some time trying to instill this reality, all right, that he is going to come back like a thief in the night, he said, Jesus said. Now, we spent some time establishing that as fact last week. What we want to do this week is talk about what it will be like when he comes back. All right? We don't have all the answers, and people that claim to have all the answers are people who are almost bold-faced lying to you because Revelation and Scripture do not give us all the answers to what it will be like, but we are informed somewhat of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns, and we want to spend some time thinking about that today. Before we go any further, though, I want to ask that you pray with me before we kick off and, and go into Scripture. Pray with me really quick. Dear Jesus... Lord, I have just been searching for clarity all morning. Dear God, honestly, all week on this message, Father, as it is difficult, as it is difficult to process the the picture that we're shown of just how glorious you are and someone as imperfect as, as I am to be able to communicate this, dear Lord, it just seems an impossible task. So God, I pray for clarity for my own sake this morning. And God, I pray that whatever happens in the next few minutes would be beneficial to your people in this room, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. When I was a child, we used to play hide-and-seek at church every Wednesday 
night. And it, we church started at 7. Uh, we would show up about 30 minutes early, and we'd play from 6.30 to 7. And then afterward, we would play, uh, church got over at 8, we'd play hide-and-seek uh, from 8 until whenever our parents found us, wherever we were hiding, right? Uh, but we did this every Wednesday night. And when the winter came, like, like what we're experiencing now, and the nights got darker earlier, it made the experience better because the hiding places were amplified, right? People would walk right by you. You know, if you walk outside right now at 630 at night, it's pitch black. Man, we loved it when winter came because you would just be running full speed, but you'd never get hot. You'd you'd be sweating down in 30-degree weather, but the hiding places were awesome. We did this every Wednesday night, and home base was a gigantic sycamore tree where the person who was the seeker, the person who was counting, had to put their head up against the sycamore tree like so, and they had to count to 20 by Mississippi's. Now, you couldn't rush the Mississippis. If you rushed your Mississippis, you got accused of being a cheater. You had to give everybody adequate time. But after the counter got to 20 Mississippi, 20 Mississippi, he would turn around, and every game would begin with the famous line, Ready or not, here I come. As we begin to think about Christ's return, Christ's second coming, we must wrap our minds around the fact that there is coming a day when from heaven Jesus will proclaim to all of those on earth, ready or not, here I come. Now this is significant for us to begin to think about because when Jesus utters these words, it will not be the initiation of some child's game of hide and seek. No, when Jesus utters these words, It will initiate the beginning of our eternity with Him, and it will be the end of all of Christ's enemies. So, we need to wrap our minds around the fact that this day is coming. And Scripture in Revelation chapter 19 clues us in on what this day will be like. The moment after Christ, ready or not, is captured... In Revelation 19, it introduces to us the famous scene of the Battle of Armageddon. Now, depending on which context you grew up with, if you grew up in the church, the Battle of Armageddon is not some new notion to you, right? You've probably heard about the Battle of Armageddon where the forces of evil and darkness and Satan all come out in one force and for one final uh, mighty battle, the forces of good will meet the forces of evil and they'll just have one ultimate battle for the end of the world, right? That's what kind of pop culture has taught us. I say pop culture teaches that because we in nowhere see that image come up in the Bible. We're introduced to the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19, but what we shall soon find out is is that it is no battle at all. It should, in fact, be called the Great Retreat at Armageddon because when Christ shows up, there is no battle, there is only conquering. And in fact, what we're going to see today is this. When he returns, Christ and all of his power and goodness will conquer his enemies. Now, there's a phrase in this main idea of the sermon. That's what I I call this that I put up on the the screen. There's a phrase that I want to ask you and invite you to, to savor for just a second. When he returns, Christ and all of his power and goodness will conquer his enemies. And all of his power and goodness. As we dissect Revelation 19, I want to ask you today, would you approach it 
with eyes eager to see Jesus. To see Him in His power and goodness. We are about to, with unveiled eyes, see the glory of the Creator King of the universe. And I'm here to tell you this morning that seeing Jesus changes everything. I don't say that to you as somebody, as preacher speak, right? A preacher's supposed to say that. I, I say that to you as someone who has seen Jesus and had his life completely turned around, completely sent in another direction, completely been put under Jesus' rule and authority just because I saw him for who he really was. And if I can be so bold as to be just completely transparent with you this morning, the reason I decided to go into ministry, the reason that I decided to, to become a pastor and do what I do on a weekly basis instead of going and working in corporate America or going and teaching high school or going and doing any of the other things that 18-year-olds, they, they ponder, right, when they're, they're, they're in college trying to figure out what they're going to do with their life. The reason why I decided to do what I'm doing today is for the opportunity that I might show other people the Jesus that I saw in Scripture. And we're going to see that in Revelation 19. As a matter of fact, the way I see it, Revelation 19 seems to be doing this. Revelation 19 seems to be showing us how Jesus conquers in order to show us who Jesus is. So that if we understand how Jesus will come and conquer, we'll understand who Jesus is. With all that in mind, let's read Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16 together. Here's what Scripture says. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. I love the opening phrase here. I, I saw, then I saw, this is a, a key phrase in the book of Revelation. It introduces us to the scenes, right? Anytime John uses the phrase, then I saw, it's like going into a different scene in a movie. And this is the fifth and final time that John uses this phrase in the book of Revelation, and it's introducing us to the fifth and final scene. And what is this scene? He says, then I saw, and behold. I love that word, behold. It means look you know what john's asking you to do he's asking you to look to jesus this morning look to him look at what's coming what does he see a white horse and the one sitting on him is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war and his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself that is in heavy contention for my favorite verse in all of scripture he has a name what is it i don't know he hadn't told anybody. I'm just saying, that's, that's a level of authority that you can only dream about, right? What should I call you? Call me whatever you want. You're not going to know my real name. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Here's what you can call him. You don't know his real name, but his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and lord of lords let's take a look at jesus together and let me just ask you let's before we even go forward okay i'm begging you 
even right now, would you pray, God, let me see what you want me to see. Shed any uh, preconceived ideas. Shed all of what you think Jesus might be and ask to see Jesus as he really presents himself in the Scripture. Let's see Jesus together. Let's see Jesus by asking, how does Christ conquer? What we're going to ask is this, how does Christ conquer? Because remember, in seeing how Christ conquers, we see who Jesus is. How does Christ conquer? The first thing I want you to notice is this. Christ conquers by His nature. Christ conquers by His nature. If you have Scripture with you this morning, I would encourage you this. It would be a good sermon to pull it out because we're going to walk through this text together. If not, it will be on the screen as much as possible. But we're going to walk through this and look at His nature. Christ conquers by His nature. Now let me throw down as a, as a blanket statement before we begin to dissect uh, everything that John says about his nature. Here's what we see from the revelation that John shows us about the nature of Jesus. Jesus is good. He comes as a gracious and mighty a- a king who is good to his people. I can't help but every time I, I, I think about the nature of Jesus, and, and especially in Revelation 19, I'm taken back to the Chronicles of Narnia, the children's book that C.S. Lewis wrote. And I, I really do hope that you've uh, invested the time to read these books. Man, they're such great books. But in the Chronicles of Narnia, the character who represents Christ is the character Aslan, who is a lion. He is the lion, and he, he represents Jesus in this fictional world. And when the children hear that they're going to meet a lion named Aslan, Aslan, they become immediately terrified. As a matter of fact, Lucy says to Mrs. Beaver, that's one of the characters, she says, Mrs. Beaver, I shall be rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver responds, quite right, dear. You you actually should be very nervous. She says, in fact, anyone who comes before Aslan without their knees knocking would be a fool. Isn't that kind of funny? We kind, of think, we kind of take Jesus so lightly, and what the Jesus we find in Scripture is that you, you approach a certain way. And Lucy says, well, well, is he safe? I'm going to meet a lion. I'm going to be terrified to meet a lion. Is the lion safe? And Mrs. Beaver responds, no, dear, he's not safe. He's a lion, but he is good. You see... The point was not that she didn't have to worry because he was safe. The point was that she didn't have to worry because he's good. We begin to think about Jesus' nature. What we need to understand first and foremost is that we serve a king in Jesus, that I am inviting you today to serve a king in Jesus who is good. And John shows us just how good he is by spelling out his nature for us. In verse 11, he calls Jesus faithful and true. He says that on the right horse, the one is called Faithful and true. That, that, those are his names. They're, they're capitalized. Faithful and true. This is what he shall be referred to. And that what John seems to be saying here is that Jesus, as he comes, is someone who is unfailing and genuine. In essence, John seems to be saying that when you see Jesus come, you will begin to understand that he is, in fact, the real deal. And the reason why we should feel the significance of this is that we live in a world of fakes and counterfeits. Let me explain to you what I mean. We live in a world of fakes and counterfeits, and we know that because we've lived our entire life looking for something that Jesus can provide. We go... 
from paycheck to paycheck. We go from position to position. We go from substance to substance. We go from person to person. We go from sin to sin thinking that if I get that, then I will be satisfied. Then I will be happy. Then I will be whole. And we live our life going through the motions of looking for the next thing that's going to make us feel the way we ought to feel. And what have we found out? That we go through life and we live in a world of fakes and counterfeits because just as soon as we get the next thing that was supposed to make us happy, it vanishes in our arms. We're like children walking across a dry desert and we see a mirage off in the distance and we go and drink our belly full only to find out it was sand. Because we live in a world of fakes and counterfeits. And John seems to be saying to us, I know, I know, I know that you have lived your whole world looking for something that will make you happy. I know, I know, I know that you have lived your whole world looking for someone who would make you feel whole. I know, I know, I know that you've looked for satisfaction. But here comes Jesus. And He is the alleviation of every anxiety. He is the cure for every sickness. He is the fulfillment of every satisfaction. John seems to be saying, look, He's faithful and true. He is the real deal. His nature is good. And so as we see Jesus come, listen, I'm, I'm begging you, shed whatever you walked in here and see Him coming. He's coming and He's good. It's good news for you that He's coming. It's good news that He's coming. He's faithful and true. But His activity, His nature is also further clarified by His activity. Look what His activity is. In verse 12 it says, In righteousness He judges and makes war. Now these are two activities that I dare say in 2022 we would not associate Jesus with. Judgment and making war. We live in a world where the primary activity of Christ is acceptance and inclusion. Where the world has somewhat t- turned Jesus to say that Jesus is for whatever you are for. And I'm here to tell you that that version of Jesus is too counterfeit. Because when we find Jesus coming, the good news is that Jesus is not saying everything goes. The good news is not Jesus saying anything is accepted. Jesus comes judging. Jesus comes making war. This is such good news because I know there are times where we as Christians, we begin to get discouraged because we feel like we live in this one amorphous blob of darkness. The the darkness seems to be descending upon us and we wonder, is there any hope for the light to break out? It, It seems like moral evil gets stronger and moral purity gets weaker. And we wonder, how do I push back against this darkness? How do I show the love of Jesus? How do I show those who I disagree with that I do not, in fact, hate you? I love you. And then we feel like we're being closed in darkness. And you want to know why it's good news that Jesus comes? Jesus comes into a world of darkness and begins to judge. Here's what that means. He begins to separate that which is right from that which is wrong. Things begin to become crystal clear when Jesus comes and He judges and He separates that which is evil evil, from that 
which is pure. He separates that which sin has broken from that which he is going to redeem. He judges, and listen, he makes war. Here's what that means. He fights against everything that sin has broken. When Jesus comes back, the famous phrase of J.R.R. Tolkien at the end of the Lord of Rings that will, will ring in all of our ears, all the sad things will come untrue as he judges and makes war. I hope you see that this is he's good. He's not coming. He's not coming vindictively. He's not coming punitively for his people. His coming is good. Let me prove it to you. His nature is further clarified by the fact that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, verse 13 says. Now, I'll be honest with you. As I started to study this week, it troubled me that Jesus Christ wore a robe dipped in blood as he came to a battle. Because I don't know if you know this, but if Jesus Christ is coming to battle and Jesus leaves with blood on his robe, that's not a good sign for you and me. Right? If I get in a fight with another man and I have a little bit of blood on my shirt, here's the deal. There's a chance that it could be the other guy's blood, right? Well, if Jesus comes and Jesus comes to fight and he leaves the blood on him, I'm just telling you, it ain't his. So I'm looking and I'm thinking, Jesus, your coming is good. and I, I know it's good over the rest of Scripture. How is it good news that you come dipped in blood? And then it hit me. The interesting piece is that Jesus shows up to battle with blood already on him. In other words, the blood is not a byproduct of the fighting. Whose blood is Jesus wearing? He's not wearing the blood of his enemies. He's wearing his own blood. The fighting has already been done. I want to tell you this morning, there is no more war to be fought between the powers of good in Christ and the powers of evil. The powers of evil have lost. They lost 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary when he who was innocent died for those who were guilty. And he shows up in a robe dipped in his own blood. And it can't be any clearer. Who are we talking about? We're talking about a good and gracious and generous king that he is coming back to judge and make war. But as he comes, you are his enemy. And he is saying, you do not have to be my enemy. We can be friends. I will make peace, Jesus says, not with your blood, but with mine. Jesus returns. He returns as the Savior who died on a cross to redeem you from what you could not redeem yourself from. You see, the only question is this, church. Will you go and ask for His gift of blood that was shed for you? Will you say, I need your blood so that I don't have to shed my blood? It's what it means to be a Christian. It does, that foundationally it doesn't mean that you read your Bible it doesn't mean that you go to church it doesn't mean that you're a good person foundationally what it means that you are a Christian means that when Jesus Christ comes, back from he- comes from heaven to this earth that the blood on his garment paid the price for your sins that's what it means to be a Christian the only question is that when Jesus comes back will you accept his shed blood or will he shed your blood Because listen, I want to be clear on this. Even though Jesus has made terms of peace, He is coming to make war. And His enemy in the final battle will be put under His boot. So will it be His blood or will it be yours? 
And this is the whole reason behind verse 16. The scripture says this, he will tread the wine, the wine press of God's fury. In other words, he's come the first time to make peace, and you can have peace. But he will come the second time to make all that is wrong right. Can I ask you something, church? When you think about Jesus, is this the person that comes to your mind? My fear is that we've relegated him and we've made him so small and so trivial that when we throw out terms like Jesus' grace, we forget the Jesus that comes riding in on, on a white horse in Revelation 19. Do you see his goodness? Do you see his goodness? Man, I'm, I'm yearning today that you would see a king who's coming back and you would say, he's good. He's good. But I don't want you just to see his goodness. I want you to see his power. I want you to see his power. Second, Christ conquers his enemies by his power. He is not only good, he is powerful. No, no, notice, remember the story of, of C.S. Lewis and Aslan. When they came before the lion, their knees were knocking for good reason because they were coming before a powerful lion. We come before a powerful God, and I want you to notice this as a blanket statement about his power that we're about to read. See this, his power is unmatched. His power is in a, unmatched. When we talk about the power of Christ, we can start to see it in verse 12. Look what it says. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, I think we all understand that imagery pretty well, do we not? What does fire do? It burns through. It sifts through. It, it burns up. And when it's related to the eyes, the image seems to be clear here. That Jesus looks with eyes like flames of fire, and nothing is hidden from him. So that when he looks on you, nothing is hidden from Jesus. I want to make this a, an exceptionally practical thought. The deepest, darkest thoughts of your heart and soul that you don't want anyone else to know about. Jesus knows. They have never been hidden. And can I tell you the exceptionally good part about this? The good news is, He came and He died anyway. You don't scare Jesus off. There is not a person in this room who is out sinned, who is out, who is overly problematic, who has outrun the cross of Christ because Jesus' eyes are like flames of fire and He sees and He knows and He's offering you the blood anyway. His eyes are like flame of fire. The, the point seems to be here that Jesus is omniscient. You're not hiding anything from Jesus. It's like playing hide-and-go-seek with a three-year-old, right? And you walk in the room, right, and their, their feet are sticking out from the curtains. Yeah, great job, man. You hit it well. Not from Jesus. His eyes are like flames of fire. Notice this. The follow-up phrase is this. And on his head are many diadems. Now, I don't know. That's a weird word to use. Uh, the, the English word we would use instead of diadems, we would say crowns. Now, we get this imagery very clear here, right? Who wears crowns? Kings and queens, the sovereigns, the ones who are ultimately in control. What seems to be the, the, the problematic piece of this is that as Jesus comes, though, he does not come wearing one crown. He comes wearing many crowns. The imagery here is that they're almost falling off of him as he rides. The crowns, they're just spilling off. 
And now to first century readers, this wouldn't have been that, kind of, that, that shocking to first century hearers because they understood that when a king ruled over multiple lands, they wore multiple crowns. So that if you were the king of Assyria and Babylon, you didn't wear one crown, you wore two. In other words, you don't want to mess with me because I'm not just in charge of one army, I'm in charge of two armies. Jesus shows up and he's wearing multiple crowns. That every, and, and the, every nation on the planet is under him. There's not one who he does not, Abraham Kuyper said it this way, there's not one square inch over all the earth where Jesus does not say, mine, 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 mine. He comes wearing multiple crowns. He is king of kings, lord of lords, higher than any. And can I just tell you that this has been great comfort to me personally? In a nation that seems to be chasing after political idols. Now, you're going, somebody's going to email me about this. I'm sorry. Like, I really don't mean to, to offend anybody. If like, you're really involved in politics, that's good. Go vote. Do whatever you need to do. I, I, I promise. That's, that's not what I mean by this. But in a nation that seems to be chasing political idols, it is great comfort to me that Jesus is not intimidated by who sits in what office. We live in a world where we have politicians and presidents and kings hungry for the prime position, and Scripture seems to be saying to us here that they are mere fools if they believe themselves to be supreme. No. Jesus comes in, Lord of lords and King of kings. Whether the White House is red or blue, whether the, the Congress is Republican-led or Democratic-led, whether, whether the world chases after a, a man and calls it him Savior, Je then their Savior, Jesus is not intimidated because when Jesus comes back, He will also be wearing the crown of the United States of America because they too will be under His foot. Now listen, I'm not, go vote, right? I'm not, Pastor, are you saying we don't need to vote? No, do all that. I'm just saying Jesus isn't scared. He's King of kings, Lord of lords. Verse 12 finishes this way. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is the ultimate flex, in my opinion, in all of Scripture. Jesus, what's your name? Well, I know it, but I ain't going to tell you. This is significant for a couple of reasons, but primarily it's significant because in the first century, to know, one, to know one's name was to have power over them. This is particularly true in relation to the gods. That if you knew the name of a god, you could, by definition, inconvenience the god. Let me give you an example. You see me walking down the street. You know my name. You yell out, Pastor Dallas, right? In that moment, you have had power over me to inconvenience me if I turn around. It's not an inconvenience. You yell my name, all right? But what have you done? You've stopped me. You have leverage over me. You have power over me. And what John seems to be telling us about Jesus here is that it does not matter how close you are to Jesus, you will never have leverage over him. There is nothing that you offer that he is in need of. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
And I think there's a deeper meaning, meaning here as well, that, that names reveal a level of intimacy, correct? Like when you, let me put it this way. Most of you who have been coming here for like longer than six months, right? I know your name. But for a lot of you here, I have to do this every now and then to the host team, right? Somebody, the people are out here checking in kids, right? It's usually either uh, like Jenna, my wife, or, or Kristen, or, or Tiffany. I have to go up to them and I say, hey, that person you just checked in. What was their name, right? Now, what does that, that convey? It conveys that I don't have a level of intimate knowledge with that person. But for some of you, I do have a little bit deeper level of knowledge. What do I do? I, I call you by your first name when you walk in. But for most of you, can I tell you this? I don't know your whole name. Why? Because we're not that close. Unless it's on Facebook, then I just call you that all the time, right? But I, let me take it a step deeper. I'm willing to bet there are some of you in this room who have a name for your spouse that only you know and no one else knows. What does that convey? That you know them in a way that no one else knows. And Jesus seems to be saying here that I have a name written that no one knows but myself because I am inexhaustibly knowable. You can know Jesus as the baby born in a manger. You can know Jesus as the Word of God. You can know Jesus as the King of kings. You can know Jesus as the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, right? Emmanuel, God with us. And the deeper and deeper and deeper you go into your knowledge of Jesus, you are only just beginning. You see, we're all undergrads in our knowledge of Jesus. There's more to be known. Then, finally, we see God's goodness. We see God's power. The last thing I want you to see is this. How does Christ conquer? Christ conquers his enemies by his word. By his word. And I want you to see this final piece of, of, this final piece of revelation about Jesus. That when Jesus speaks in Revelation 19, his word is absolute. In other words... There is no negotiation with it. This is, this is fairly important because when Jesus speaks, a sword comes out of his mouth. I don't know if you know this, but a sword is not a tool of negotiation. A sword is a tool of submission. And Jesus comes and he speaks and here's the options for people. You can submit or you can submit. His word will be absolute. And here's why I find this so exceptionally comforting in a world that is just going crazy. We live in a world where no one seems to agree that Jesus' words, that God's word, is authoritative anymore. And we see this playing out in several ways. And listen, I, I want to encourage you, as Christians, we should mourn that. We should mourn that the people that people don't believe that God's word is the authority in their life. But we should not panic about it. Because there is going to come a day when if every voice that that was disagreeing with God's word arose in unison against him, it would matter not. Because when he speaks Everyone will recognize he's in control when I'm not. Which brings us to a practical question here and now, Christian. Is the Word of God your authority? 
Are there places in your life where you know what Scripture says about how you should live, how you should love, how you should treat people, but instead you reason around it, you, you work around it to live a life that suits you? Because listen, I just want to be clear about this. We cannot mourn the outside world's loss of appreciation for the Word of God when we live like hypocrites to the Word of God. And so I just want to challenge you to view what we read in Scripture, to really begin to ask yourself, do I view this as the ultimate rule of my life? That there is no negotiation, that there is no uh, working around, there is no reasoning, but whatever Jesus says is what I want to live by. And can I tell you, man, that's, that's hard. But when Jesus comes, we'll be glad. Church, ultimately today, what I want you to see is this. The glorious, dangerous, good, gracious, all-powerful, all-creating, sovereign king of all the universe is coming again. And we can be his friend. Ready or not, guys, here he comes. Pray with me. Lord, I just want to offer at this moment, dear God, a, a prayer of repentance for anything that I've said today that might be out of your will, God. Lord, this has been such an exceptionally... Uh, weird thing to prepare for dear god as i want to talk about the glories of a manifold god the glories of a of a unknowable god and and communicate that to people dear lord I, I just feel like i don't have adequate words and i feel like i don't have adequate implications for what it means to life and i feel like i'm just figuring this out but dear lord i pray that by the power of your holy spirit you would help us see that it's good news that you're coming again and dear God, I pray that right here and right now we would begin to look at the blood that's on the, the robes as, as the blood that it was sacrificed for us, that we would not run from that, but we would run to you, Jesus, so that when you come again, we could, we could be prepared so that when you say, ready or not, here I come, we could say, yes, Lord Jesus, amen, come quickly. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.